We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So I want to address a few elephants in the room. Elephant number one uh, is that some of you may have noticed that my wife is not here. Uh, It is not because she's in labor and I don't know it. I have I have little birdies. I have a system uh, in place. It's just because she wasn't feeling up to the walk today. So she's, as we uh, used to say in USY, she's davening kiachid today. She's uh, davening by herself today, um, and uh, so nobody needs to worry. I'm uh, I'm okay. Um, elephant number two is that change is hard. And this holiday and this season in which all of us are invited to consider changes that we like to make to our lives or that we ought to make to our lives have to confront the fact and the reality that change is not usually easy. Sometimes little changes are easy, but serious changes, significant changes, tshuva, which our tradition talks about, is actually usually quite difficult, quite challenging. I want to spend a few minutes today talking about that together, uh, and I want to do this in a way that is uh, different than we may be used to on the High Holy Days, uh, in which a rabbi speaks from up there, six feet above criticism, uh, and uh, never gets to interact with or engage with or hear from the people in the congregation. But you have Torah to teach too, and so I want to be able to uh, learn together and to study together and to hear from uh, each other as we uh, enter into the new year together. Uh, If you love what we're doing here, let us know. Uh, we're sending out a uh, survey or evaluation after the High Holy Days. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and who knows? Maybe this will be a tradition. Maybe this will be a tradition on the second day. Maybe you'll love it so much that people on the first day who are here don't come the second day have to be a part of something like this. And so maybe we'll do it then too. Um, maybe you'll hate it and say we should never ever do it again. Uh, and that's fine too. There's uh, only one way to know if something works or if something doesn't, which is to try it. So we're going to give it a try and today and, and, and see how it goes. The other thing is I want to be mindful of the time. We could probably, because, uh, there are many Jews here and therefore many opinions, uh, we could probably spend, uh, many minutes maybe many hours, maybe many days having this conversation together. Uh, And I welcome the ability to continue having the conversation, but we're going to be time-bound in our conversation today. And I don't want to take any longer than I would have taken if I were uh, giving a formal sermon, okay? So I'm going to keep my eye on the clock. Uh, You don't necessarily have to keep your eyes on the clock, uh, but I'll have my eye on the clock just so we know. But I would love to hear your your thoughts and your feedback about uh, about this uh, it's an experiment that I'm doing. It's not like an experiment in all of Jewish history, uh, but uh, an experiment for me here, maybe an experiment for Bethel as far as I know, but I don't know. Um, so I want to talk about that elephant in the room, about change being hard. And 
part of why I want to talk about that, in addition to it being inyana dioma, the matter of the day, uh, is that it struck me as uh, I was looking at studying our Torah portion for today, the Akedat Yitzchak, the Binding of Isaac, it struck me as I was studying that Torah portion uh, that it actually uh, is a predominant feature of the Torah portion, although you have to study it very carefully to see why. Okay, so let's just hold that for one second. Before we look at that, I want to remind us what Maimonides, what the Rambam says about tshuva, says about repentance. The Maimonides is uh, really the, the go-to source for the laws of tshuva, the laws of repentance. Uh, the Torah says that, uh, that people should repent and turn back to God. Uh, it doesn't really say much more than that. Uh, the Talmud has a lot of things to say about repentance, but they're kind of all over the map. And so Maimonides, in his way, compiles them and organizes them in a systematic fashion and says these are the steps for repentance. These are the steps to tshuva. Now, he's not the last word in the subject, but as is often the case with Maimonides, he is a definitive word and an authoritative word. So it's worth looking at what he says. So what Maimonides says is complete repentance. It's at the top of your handout. Everybody have one of these handouts? If you don't have a handout, maybe raise your hand and David will uh, will walk through and, and give them to you. As well, there's a couple hands over here on uh, to my left. Don't read ahead yet, okay? I don't want to spoil the surprise. Um, just let's stay on the first page. If you already read it, it's fine. You'll have more to repent for during Musaf. Okay. Uh, so Maimonides says, what is complete repentance? What is chuvagmura? He says, one who has both the opportunity and the ability to repeat a transgression, but refrains from doing it because of his repentance not out of fear of punishment or a lack of physical ability. So maybe in your own words, what would you say Maimonides is offering as the ideal of repentance? How do you know when you fully repented? Oh, you're waiting for a source sheet, not raising your hand to answer the question. Uh, yes, can you make sure to speak up though, okay? Good, okay, so, uh, remind, sorry, remind me your name. Matthew. What Matthew said is that Maimonides is teaching that Chuva has to be that you stop the behavior, not because of some kind of external compulsion, but because you deeply desire to stop that behavior. You want, you know that it's the wrong thing to do intrinsically, that it's the wrong thing to do, and you have the ability to continue doing it, but nevertheless, you stop doing it, and it's not only because you think you might get punished for doing it, okay? So good, that's one piece of what Maimonides is saying here. What's the other piece that he's saying here? Having a better relationship with the divine, okay, good. Any other, any other ideas? Uh, uh, the additional thing that Maimonides is saying here, in addition to the fact that it means that you have no uh, external compulsion uh, about the behavior, what else needs to be true for it to be complete tshuva? Good, excellent. Okay, so let's say, let's say my transgression is, uh, is, is you know, um, uh, is, is sexual misconduct, right? And I go to a monastery where there are only men for the rest of my life, right? Uh, and I'm not attracted to men. Uh, and, uh, and so I never have the opportunity to commit the transgression again. Have I completed tshuva? Not according to Maimonides. You need to be in the same situation. You need to have the same opportunity to do the tr transgression again. And then if you don't do it, you've completed tshuva. 
Good. Okay. So you have to know that the thing that you've done is a, a sin or transgression in the first place, right? Um, so somehow it has to be made aware to you that, uh, that the thing you've done is inappropriate, right? Then you have to want to stop doing it of your own volition. And then you have to be in the same kind of circumstance with the same kind of ability uh, in the future uh, and not do it again. And then you know you've completed tshuva. So one of the things that I often think about with this, uh, and I think that's very good, one of the things I often think about with this teaching from Maimonides is what a high level that is to know whether or not we've completed tshuva for a few reasons. Uh, but the most striking of which to me is that it means that really until the end of our life, we never know whether or not we've completed tshuva because we might repeatedly be in those kinds of situations again. And just because I don't do the thing, you know, a year down the line doesn't mean that, so, okay, a year down the line, I feel like I've done complete tshuva, but then two years down the line, I do the same thing again, and all of a sudden, I haven't done complete tshuva. So that means it's not true until I run out of opportunities to commit the transgression again. So there's a high bar here of ceasing a transgression, ceasing a certain kind of behavior entirely, totally, never doing it again. That's incredibly hard, as any of us who have ever tried to stop doing something, uh, to have tried to break a habit or something like that, that we, we know that that's an incredibly hard thing to do. How many of you here have ever tried to change a behavior or uh, tried to uh, uh, do something differently, act differently in your life, but have found it challenging? Anybody willing to share one or two things, examples? David, yeah. Great. So the point you so David said stopping smoking, and he raised a few points in that uh, process of stopping smoking about why it was so challenging and what happened during the process of stopping smoking that are important to keep in mind that we'll we'll talk about later. One of the things he said is that he started eating more when he stopped smoking, which is something common for people who stop smoking uh, that they gain weight uh, when they're trying to quit. Right? There's a reason for that biologically, uh, psychologically, and we'll talk about that uh, hopefully in, in a few minutes. Uh, what are two others? Challenges that you've had changing. Robin. Robin, Robin, stop being so desirable to women somehow. Uh, okay. I, I dispute that, but no, I'm just, uh, okay. Yeah, Roxy. Being a procrastinating perfectionizer or a perfectionizing procrastinator. You say you've stopped that? Ah, okay. So challenge changing it. Good. Excellent. All right, we all probably have things, whether we want to share them or not. You know, the one that I'm actually struggling with now, continually struggling with, is a cell phone addiction. Okay, I like, I just need to click on it all the time. Um, and even, you know, I used to be able to, like, put it out of my mind during Shabbos and during holidays, right? I used to, like, never, you know, just, like, wasn't a, uh, wasn't a factor. And over the course of time, you get so habituated to using something that, like, I find myself sort of, like, reaching into my pocket hoping that it's there so I can like play with it and click it, right? So, so change is hard. And I'll talk a little bit about uh, that if we have time later. Okay, so good. So these are all things to bear in mind, right? And we all have our own things. So without looking, you can look at the text that you have in front of you, but without reading it entirely, what might you say that Genesis chapter 22, the story of Akedat Yitzchak, has to do with change in the way that Maimonides describes it 
and that we sometimes struggle with. Good. Rita said that there are two instances, and we'll come back to that, two instances in the text where, uh, where Abraham is seemingly told to stop the behavior, uh, and, uh, and the implication being that he doesn't stop it the first time. Okay, so we'll come back to that. Yes. Excellent. So what Scott is referring to is, if you look at the very bottom of page one, verse 19, it says, Abraham then returned to his servants, and they departed together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So who is not with Abraham? Isaac is no longer with Abraham. So the Midrash points that out and says that it's conceived. Well, Sarah was never there in the first place. Sarah stayed at home. So, okay, so good. Sarah, as far as I know, was not in Beersheba. I'm trying to remember where Sarah was. Hebron, maybe? Anyway, whatever. Um, Kiryat Arba. But you're, so right. So, so it, it's possible that Abraham never saw Sarah again. And there is indeed a midrash that says that Sarah died as a result of hearing from, uh, from, from an angel, a report from an angel that Isaac was killed on Mount Moriah. Um, but what Scott is pointing out is that, uh, is that we know that Abraham and Isaac were together at the mountain. But they don't leave together. Now, there is a Midrashic tradition that says Isaac actually did die on the mountain. That's a whole other can of worms that we're not opening now. But the other one is that their relationship was irrevocably damaged from this experience, as you might imagine it could be. Uh, so one of the things that I take from that is that there's, there's an implication at the end of this that there's now a change that Abraham needs to make in his life which is a repair of his relationship with his son that he never ends up repairing. Just going to show you that even Abraham struggles with the same phenomenon. But I want to go, what I was struck by is what Rita suggested, okay? And that's why I put it in bold. And Abraham picked up the knife to slay his son. Then an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham. And he answered, here I am. And then in verse 15, an angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. Okay? The Midrash wants to know, as it often does, why two angels were needed, two angelic messages were needed. Or alternatively, why the first angel needed to say Abraham's name twice to get his attention. So here's what the Midrash says. You can see it on page two. It's a powerful Midrash. The angel said, do not raise your hand against the boy. And where was the knife? Three tears dropped from the ministering angels and destroyed the knife. So just a technical point, right? The angel says, do not raise your hand against the boy. And then they ask, where was the knife? Everybody understand what's going on here? Right? The angel says, do not raise your hand against the boy. But Abraham had just raised a knife. So why doesn't the angel say, don't slash the throat of your son? And the answer is that the angels tried to stop what Abraham was doing by crying and their tears destroying the knife. But then Abraham continued to lift his hand against Isaac. The knife just disintegrated in his hand. He didn't take that as a sign, and still he was going to kill Isaac. So the Abraham said to the angel, I will strangle him. He said to him, do not raise your hand against the boy. Abraham said to the angel, I will draw a drop of blood from him, right? Fine, I won't kill him, but let me hurt him a little bit, okay? He said to him, nor do anything to him, for now I know. Now I know that you are loyal, etc. 
So this is a very close read of the text where the rabbis of the Midrash see the angel saying multiple statements to Abraham, all of which implying that he should stop what he's doing. But as is usually the case, the rabbis are unsatisfied when the Torah could have said uh, one thing one way and instead says one thing several ways. And so assume that that must mean that they're actually saying multiple things. And so according to this Midrash, what they're saying is that Abraham kept on trying to kill Isaac, despite the fact that the angels kept on telling him not to. This, to me, is the essence of the challenge of change. Abraham is doing something that is demonstrably wrong. He's about to kill his son. He can't stop smoking cigarettes. He can't stop texting and driving. Right? He can't stop drinking, get whatever it is, right? We all do behaviors that are harmful uh, to varying degrees, right? This is a very harmful one. And Abraham can't, it's like Brokeback Mountain, right? I, I wish I could quit you, right? I, it's like, I wish I could quit killing my son Isaac, right? Abraham can't quit it. So Emmanuel Levinas, a uh, great French philosopher, says in his evocation of Abraham, Kierkegaard, who writes one of the most uh, quintessential explications of the story of Abraham. He calls Abraham the knight of faith, the model of, uh, of, of, of moral uh, conviction. So Kierkegaard describes the encounter with God at the point where subjectivity rises to the level of the religious, that is to say, above ethics. But one could think the opposite. Abraham's attentiveness to the voice that led him back to the ethical order in forbidding him to perform a human sacrifice is the highest point in the drama. That he obeyed the first voice is astonishing. That he had sufficient distance with respect to that obedience to hear the second voice, that is the essential point. What I take Levinas to mean here is that is underscoring that the point of the whole drama is that is that Abraham, the first is that Abraham was able to hear the first voice, but he still didn't stop, and then he could hear the second voice and did stop. That's the essential point. That okay, that's fine. But we so there's there's a few problems with that. I mean, so if you think, put it back into the real world, put it back into real life. Okay, um, my eighth grade friend Donna told me to smoke my first, or encouraged me to smoke my first cigarette, right? And even the Surgeon General couldn't stop me from taking more, okay? I don't smoke anymore, but, um, and I never really, you know, it's like one of those things, right? But, right? but even the Surgeon General, right, I wouldn't listen to him. So the, the authority of the messenger doesn't really matter, right? Because even if, if, the implication here, I think, is that even if God himself were, have to come, were, were to come and say, uh, stop what you're doing. The implication is that Abraham wouldn't have stopped. Now, there is also, by the way, um, when the Torah uses the term angel, they don't mean a separate being that is not God. They mean a manifestation of the divine. So an angel is not, is not something that's not God, right? So I think that the implication of the Torah, the, the pshat, the basic meaning of the text, is that um, this has the same authority that God would have. Gary? Sure. Okay. So what Rita is offering is that we all have uh, different voices that tell us uh, uh, different things, sometimes competing things, and sometimes we interpret the voices the way we want or are driven to. Uh, excellent. Okay. I'm going to take one more comment, and then we're going to move on just in the interest of time. 
Okay, so an excellent question. Why would God, who gives life and respects life, ask someone to murder their own son? An excellent question, probably the question about this text, and one we're not going to answer today. <laughs> but there's always next Rosh Hashanah. Okay, all right, good. I want to just, uh, in the interest of time, I want to keep moving on, but these are all excellent questions and all excellent points, okay? I want to very quickly look at something that is unrelated to the passage from Genesis, but I feel is related thematically, and we'll see why in a moment. Okay, so this is Nitivo Chalom, a uh, contemporary Hasidic master. He's passed away about uh, a decade and a half or so ago. We read in the book of, you see where I am on page two in the middle? We read in the book of Numbers, let men be picked among you for a military, a military campaign and let them fall upon Midian to wreak the Lord's vengeance on Midian. Okay, just quick pause. What is happening in that part of the Torah? What is the Lord's vengeance on Midian? <laughs> Can you say more? What, what, what about sex? Good, okay, so... Good. David Ruby's favorite passage in the Torah. Uh, so in the book of Numbers, the Israelites are making their way through the wilderness to the promised land. They uh, are uh, passing by the land of Moab. And the king of Moab is uh, nervous about this horde of Israelites passing through his terrain. So he hires a Midianite prophet named Bilam to curse them and hopefully destroy them through cursing them. Uh, long story short... The scheme fails, and so uh, the next story that we encounter is that uh, the children of Israel begin, uh, the language of the Bible is they begin whoring with the Moabite women or the Midianite women. Some There's uh, probably both, or they may have been the same women. They begin, quote-unquote, whoring with them, whatever that means. They begin doing some kind of sexual practices with them uh, that they're not supposed to be doing and attach themselves to Baal Peor. They attach themselves to idol worship through that action. So the rabbis of the Midrash say that that event occurred because Bilam's original plan failed. So the plan of cursing the Israelites failed, so... They went to plan B, which was to, you know, get them with their sexual immorality. Okay, and that one at least partially succeeded. And when the, uh, when, when the transgression is stopped or when the plague resulting in the transgression is stopped through a, an act of religious zeal by a, a priest named Pinchas, after that, the uh, God commands uh, there to be a military campaign launched against the Midianites as retribution. Okay, so that's the passage that we're looking at here. Let men be picked from among you for a military campaign and let them fall upon Midian to wreak the Lord's vengeance on Midian. Rashi interprets men, the men for this campaign, as righteous people, tzadikim. And in a midrash it is written that none of the 12,000 men who went to war against Midian put on their head to fill in before their arm to fill in. Now, I just want you to suspend disbelief here, okay, for on a couple of levels. The first being that there was such a thing as to fill in uh, then, and the second, which there probably wasn't, and the second being uh, that, uh, that these people would have likely been preparing for their military campaign by laying to fill in, which they probably weren't. But what he's offering here is something sort of outside of time and space. Okay, so he's making a point about the essence of tefillin using the Torah story as a springboard. 
Everybody knows what I mean when I say tefillin, right? Is there anybody who doesn't know what I mean when I say tefillin? What that word means? Or what that word looks like or is? Represents? Okay. All right. So we must explain the uniqueness of the matter that is mentioned here, that care was taken specifically to select for the army men like these, who fulfilled the commandment of tefillin in all of its particulars. Also, we must explain why specifically the war against Midian required righteous men like these who never put on their head tefillin before their arm tefillin. Know that normally you put on your arm tefillin first and then your head tefillin. It can be explained thus. The entire Jewishness of the Jew depends on the mitzvah of tefillin. Our sages went so far as to say that one who does not lay tefillin is called a head that doesn't lay tefillin. That doesn't sound like such a creative uh, term for somebody who doesn't put on tefillin, but what they, it's a shorthand in the Talmud for somebody who's destined for all sorts of punishment in hell. The hell that your religious school told, teacher told you that Jews don't believe in, but we actually do, and there's really significant punishment for those who don't wear tefillin, according to the Talmud. Okay. I'm not saying that there is, I'm just saying, do you want to risk it? Uh, So how might we explain the unique significance of the mitzvah of tefillin? We possess two essential strongholds, Reb Shalom says. These, the mind and the heart. These have dominion over the entire body. Our task, he says the quintessential Jewish task, is to subjugate these two powers, the mind and the heart, for the Holy Blessed One. By doing this, the Holy Blessed One can have dominion over our entire body. In other words, all of our thoughts, all of our actions, all of our deeds will only be for the sake of heaven. We'll only do the right thing if we were to subjugate our heart and our mind toward God. The arm to fill in is close to the heart, right? You put your arm to fill in on, uh, if you're, especially if you're righty, you put it on your left arm. It's close to the heart. The point of putting tefillin on our arm is to conquer the desires and thoughts of our heart and direct them to the service of God. And the point of putting tefillin on our head next to our brain is to direct our mind along with the rest of our feelings and powers to the service of God. Through the mitzvah of tefillin, we give over our heart and mind to the Holy Blessed One, for they are the essence of our dominion over ourselves. In this way, we place our entire body under God's control. That is why we put our arm to fill in on before our head to fill in. It's impossible to conquer the soul, which is in the mind, with all of its feelings and strengths, if we do not first conquer the desires and thoughts of our heart. Okay, you can read the rest of the passage. There's other things in there that he says that I think are worth uh, studying. But that's what I want us to remember just for a moment. That is, I think, a profoundly sensitive insight that the Nativo Shalom offers. It is impossible to conquer our minds without first conquering our hearts. And the essence of why change is so hard is that normally we think of change as a cognitive function. We think of it in the terms of willpower. If we just will ourselves to change, if we know what the changes we want to make and tell ourselves we should make that change, then if we don't make that change, it's a failure of our will. But the truth is, it's not a failure of our will, usually. It's actually a failure of our heart, more often. It's a failure of our emotion rather than our intellect. So here is what... Uh, a couple of contemporary researchers have to say about it. Page four. Your brain isn't of one mind. 
The brain has two independent systems at work at all times. First, there's what we call the emotional side. It's the part of you that is instinctive, that feels pain and pleasure. Second, there's the rational side, also known as the reflective or conscious system. It's the part of you that deliberates and analyzes and looks into the future. The duo's tension, and this is why I've titled this study what I've titled it, the duo's tension is captured best by an analogy used by University of Virginia psychologist, now actually at NYU, Jonathan Haidt, in his wonderful book, The Happiness Hypothesis. Haidt says that our emotional side is an elephant, and our rational side is the rider. Perched atop the elephant, the rider holds the reins and seems to be the leader. But the rider's control is precarious because the rider is so small relative to the elephant. Anytime the six-ton elephant and the rider disagree about which direction to go, the rider is going to lose. He's completely overmatched. Most of us are all too familiar with situations in which our elephant overpowers our rider. You've experienced this if you've ever slept in, dialed up your ex at midnight, Robin, uh, procrastinated, tried to quit smoking and failed, skipped the gym, gotten angry and said something you regretted, me, abandoned your Spanish or piano lessons, refused to speak up in a meeting because you were scared, and so on. The weakness of the elephant, our emotional and instinctive side, is clear. It's lazy and skittish, and it's often looking for the quick payoff, like an ice cream cone, over the long-term payoff, like being thin. When change efforts fail, it's usually the elephant's fault, since the kinds of change we want typically involve short-term sacrifices for long-term payoffs. Right? Smoking is a great example of that. Right? We have to give short-term sacrifices of the pleasure of that cigarette for the long-term payoff of, God forbid, not having cancer. Changes often fail because the rider simply can't keep the elephant on the road long enough to reach the destination. The rider's great weakness is spinning his wheels. The rider tends to overanalyze and overthink things. So, if you want to change things, you've got to appeal to both. The rider provides the planning and direction, and the elephant provides the energy. A reluctant elephant and a wheel-spinning rider can both ensure that nothing changes. But when elephants and riders move together, change can come easily. I think what they're saying here is that the reason change is so hard is that we often think about change as willpower. But really, change is ultimately, first and foremost, about heart power. Unless we change how we feel, unless we direct our emotions, change our emotions, change that emotional system, we're never going to change how we behave. And so making changes in our lives first requires understanding why we do what we do, why we have the habits that we have, and then working with that psychology instead of against it by training our heart first, which then influences the mind. In reality, we're not though it's what's often depicted in our tradition, totally rational, free-thinking creatures. We are primarily emotional. We are more elephant than rider. And so in order to change, we have to appeal to, satisfy, or manipulate our emotions rather than utilizing entirely our will and our reason. That's why people who quit smoking 
cold turkey by sheer virtue of willpower, they might be able to do it, but they often gain weight or have other challenges or develop other kinds of habits. I worked at an addiction recovery center and like the place was filled with the smell of cigarette smoke because it was, it was not a uh, medical facility, it was a 12-step facility, right, which deals with addiction essentially through willpower. And so they sacrifice one addiction, one behavior, for a less immediately life-threatening and dangerous one, right? But we do that all the time. And it's because, it's not because we don't have enough willpower. It's because we're trying to push an elephant, and it's draining to push the elephant. We can only do so much at a time. So here's what Jonathan Haidt says about this, and I need to wrap this up in the interest of time. I'm happy to continue the conversation. But I love this. And, and I think that this is also what Nativo Shalom was getting at. So he says that there are three things that we can do in order to change. The first is direct the rider. We have to be crystal clear about where we want to go, right? So that's, I want to never smoke again, right? That's crystal clear. That's how you direct the rider. That's how the rider knows which direction the elephant's got to go. That's true. But more importantly than that, you have to motivate the elephant, a persuasive, rational argument, the Surgeon General's warning, isn't enough. You have to make the change itself more rewarding than the habit you're seeking to replace. Or make the habit painful or undesirable enough that change becomes a necessity. And the third is change the path. And this is the one I love the most. So if we want change, we have to change aspects of our environment that are reinforcing, encouraging, or encouraging the behavior we want to change. Right? So think about an elephant on the road. You want to get it to go one way and not another. Right? So you can block the path that's on. It's got to go that other way. Or you can create a new path that's even more appealing than the first path. So this happened to me. I've been, like I said, wrestling with, uh, with cell phone addiction. Okay? And I want to change it. So what do I do? When I get into my car now, I throw my cell phone into the trunk. And on Shabbos, on Friday afternoon, I pay my daughter $5 a week to hide my cell phone for me in a place that I will never think about finding it on Shabbat. Now, a rational person doesn't do something like that, right? Because we're not entirely rational people. My elephant needs that. My elephant needs a different path, a clear path. And that's what I get through that insane behavior of having my daughter hide my cell phone from me on Shabbat. But then I can't find, I have no idea where it is. I can't reach for it. I can't play with it. I can't use it. This is, I think, the insight that the Akedah is trying to teach us and that Reb Shalom Berzovsky is trying to reinforce. That if we want to change our behavior, we have to start with our elephant. We have to change our hearts. And through our hearts, our minds will change. And through changing both our hearts and our minds, we'll be able to direct all our body, all our spirit, all our faculties to the service of being who we are called to be in the world, to being God's messengers on earth, to being those in the service of making the world a fitting dwelling place for the divine. Shana Tovah.